Okay, so if you will look in the paper that you got, you'll notice that it says chapter 10. And it's always good to start a book right in the middle, right? Really, you know what's going on. So the reason we're starting in chapter 10 is because last time I taught Tanya here, we finished chapter 9. And you're thinking, but I wasn't here then. But now, let's all try to empathize with the teacher for a moment. If every time new students come, I have to start at the beginning. I'm going to keep teaching the introduction in chapters 1 and 2 for the rest of my life. And how do you think that'll make me feel? Okay. However, I'm not just um, doing this for my own personal benefit. Um, because these classes are recorded, you do have the ability to go onto the MyNote SoundCloud and go listen to the previous classes. And um, there is things to be gained from many, many, many different chapters in the Tanya. So the way I've decided to do the class, at least for the foreseeable future, is that when we have um, a new starting point, um, I dedicate the first class, although sometimes it could take more than one class, but I'm trying to do one class, of providing background and context so that we don't just start reading chapter 10 in the middle of nowhere, okay? Um, and then we're gonna go to chapter 10. And what are we going to do after chapter 10? Probably chapter 11. After chapter 11? Chapter 12. Although, given my record and how slowly I go, I doubt we'll get to chapter 12, but we'll see if we'll speed things up. Okay. Well, it depends, like, when people leave, right? Okay. Um, now... What I want to do in this class, like I said, is give background, but I want to split it into two parts. The first I want to do is give background in general about the Tanya as a whole, and then I would like to give an overview of some of the main important things that we're going to have to have in mind and understand as we start studying chapter 10. But chapter 10, actually, you could, I mean, if chapter 10 really couldn't be understood starting in chapter 10, that wouldn't start there. I wouldn't do that to you. Not that mean. Okay. Now, the first thing to know is that the Tanya is a work of Hasidus. Does anyone know what that means? I mean, it's important to know if something is, what kind of book it is, right? If you open up a book and it's a medical book, you should expect to find information about medicine, right? So if it's a work of Hasidus, you should expect to find what in it? Okay, so would someone care to tell me what Hasidus is? Talking about God. So anything that's talking about God is Hasidus? Specifically Torah that talks about God. Any Torah that talks about God is Hasidus. No, the study of God. Anything that's theology is Hasidus. It's hard to actually say what something is, right? There was a famous non-Jewish philosopher that said that to to say what something is, it's important to say what it is while excluding what it isn't. If I tell you that a cup is something you can buy in a store, it's technically accurate, but I'm going to tell you what a cup is because many things you can buy in a store, right? And it's true that Hasidus is part of Torah, but, you know, so so is the Talmud. And it's true that Hasidus speaks about God, but so does Jewish philosophy, Okay, so does anyone want to try again? Would you like the interesting Yanisho 
if you understand it and can defend it when I start poking holes at it. If you're just going to, if you're just going to repeat something that you read, then no. <laughs> okay, so there, there's a good reason why people have a hard time saying what Hasidus is, and that is because arguably, um, Hasidus really is not a part of the Torah in the traditional sense. Right? You have the, the Chumash, which is the stories and, and, the, and the mitzvahs that were given to Moshe and Sinai. You have the rest of the Tanakh, the rest of the Bible. You have the oral Torah, the Mishnah. And these works, you can, you can probably say, like, okay, this book is about teaching us what we're supposed to do. And this book is about explaining to us Jewish morality. And this book is about this. Hasidus arguably actually doesn't fit nicely into that because Hasidus is not really a part of the Torah in that sense. Hasidus originally started as something that was experienced and not studied. Okay? The originator of the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov, did not write any books. Okay? Nor did he really mean for his teachings to be studied. To illustrate this with an analogy, um, imagine if a person were to study in university um, and get a degree in music, but they were deaf from birth, and so they never heard music in their life. Do you think they would be missing something fundamental about what music is? Yeah. Okay. On the other hand, what if a person is illiterate um, and very musical? They, live, they listen to music, they have a knack for music, they, they can pick up and play music by ear, not necessarily that they can read them sheet music. Which of those two people has a better sense of music? The second, right? Because music is something that is experienced by the human being, right? And so if you lack, God forbid, the, the, the sensory ability of hearing to be able to experience the music, it's going to really close you off from what that is, okay? So what is Hasidus? Well, first we have to understand that it's not a section of ideas. It's actually something that's supposed to be experienced. And the basic idea is like this. God is very, very close and also very far at the same time. And a Jew has in themselves an ability to experience how intimate and infinitely close God is, and at the same time, how infinitely far God is. And when Judaism is practiced and life is lived with that sense, that's called chassidus. God is infinitely close, God is infinitely far. And a Jew has a very special ability to sense that, to experience that. And when a Jew experiences the infinite closeness of God while simultaneously experiencing the infinite distance from God, their practice of Judaism and life that's lived from that place, from that experience, that's what Hasidus is. Now, we can give it many different names. We call it the essence of the soul. We can call it godly light. Um, you know, there's a, there's different ways of talking about it, but that's again like there's different ways of talking about what a piece of music sounds like. It's not the same thing as actually hearing the music, right? So Hasidus is something that's ultimately supposed to be lived. So how did the Balshamtov spread Hasidus? 
he lived that way and he was able to bring out in other people that experience for themselves. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Chassidus. Okay. Now, there are many different things that come along with this kind of experience. For instance, if God is infinitely close, then that comes along with a tremendous joy, a tremendous zest for life. On the other hand, if God is infinitely far, that brings about a tremendous humility. And so the, 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 and the, the idea of Hasidus is not that a person is supposed to cultivate the trappings of a person that li- as if they experience this closeness to Hashem, but the opposite, that they're experiencing the closeness to Hashem and therefore they consequently have whatever those ramifications are, the, the joy, the humility, the piety, etc. And the Baal Shem Tov spread Hasidus experientially through person-to-person contact. Um, if you want a physical analogy for this, if you imagine you have a flame and you use that flame to kindle another, another flame, right? So now you have two flames, three flames, and four flames, right? So the Baal Shem Tov, by his own experience of godliness, when he interacted with another Jew, he was able to kindle that within that other Jew and then that person became a follower of the Baal Shem Tov. Now, the Baal Shem Tov's disciples, they did the same thing. And that is traditionally how Hasidus is meant um, to be viewed, is that Hasidus is really something that is experiential. And it's like a flame. When the flame is lit, you can then light another flame. But if you don't have a flame, then everything's cold and dark. So, the idea of writing a book of Hasidus is a little bit... Um, it's a little bit weird, right? Because if you're writing a book, right, a book is about something. It isn't the thing itself, right? A book about music isn't music. A book about um, football isn't football, right? So a book about Hasidus is arguably, it's not Hasidus. Okay. Now, the Tanya is not the first work of Hasidus, but it is the first work of its kind. And I want to explain to you what I mean. Before the Tanya, the other works of Hasidus were collections of sayings, for the most part. Collections of sayings of the Baal Shem Tov. Um, and the primary purpose of these things was not that they were supposed to actually be the source of Hasidus, but that they were supposed to help anchor a person. I'll give you an example. If you look at a picture of an event that you were never at, it's very different than if you look at a picture of an event that you actually experience, right? So if you look at, for instance, a picture um, of your own graduation many years later, or you look at a picture of your wedding many years later, right? That picture evokes a lot of experience, right? A lot of memory, a lot of feeling. On the other hand, if you look at, if someone else looks at that picture, it's very nice. It's a picture of the person there, standing there, they're smiling, it's very nice, right? Someone who has experienced Hasidus and then has one of these books of collections of Hasidic sayings, what do those sayings do? They help trigger, they help evoke that Hasidic sensibility in themselves. But what if you don't ha- haven't had that experience, the person hasn't had that interaction with a Hasidic master, then the, then the book, I mean, these books didn't really do a very good job of explaining 
their ideas because they weren't meant to do that and they didn't do a very good job of evoking the experience on their own. Um, and to this day, in many Hasidic groups, there is not really a tradition of studying or learning Hasidus for this reason. Hasidus is meant to be something that is brought about through the lived interaction with a Hasidic master that evokes in the person their own sense of that closeness to God. And then, having that, there's maybe a person who reads some sayings and, and gets some inspiration from that, but it's much more of that as a tool to evoke something in themselves that they've already experienced, to recall it, and, and to anchor it, rather than to develop in something they have never not experienced. Which is one of the reasons why in the Hasidic movement, there became a very strong attachment to the Hasidic master known as a Rebbe or a Tzaddik, depending on, you know, how you want to call the person. Um, and in many Hasidic groups, um, people would regularly travel to their Rebbe. Um, there's a whole genre of Hasidic stories about this idea of people traveling to Rebbe, sometimes the detriment of other parts of their life, such as their business and their family. Um, but the idea is that there was something almost addictive about having a sense of the reality of God in such a real way and living life from that place. But because that was something that was brought out through the interaction with the Hasidic master, the relationship between the Hasid and the Rebbe became a very, very central point. And that began already with the Baal Shem Tov. So the Tanya should be seen, therefore, as an anomaly. Because the Tanya, as the Alter Rebbe writes in his introduction, is a way of replacing the interaction between the Hasidic master and the Hasid, the Rebbe and the Hasid, and saying, here, you don't need me, you have a book, and the book will explain to you Hasidus, so now you don't need to come to me so often. Because, because the interaction, the human interaction between them and the, and the Rebbe would bring out the sense of Hasidus in themselves. In other words, they would be experiencing something. Now, the problem with experiences, and this is one of the reasons why I'm keeping this very vague, the problem with experiences is that trying to describe experiences that, that you haven't had, or experiences that they're describing to someone who hasn't had them, you you have a very hard time communicating because there's not really a good point of reference. So we end up using a lot of stories and analogies, um, and I could do that, but then we would spend the rest of the class doing that. So I'm leaving it very vague as to what that is, but suffice to say it was very powerful, it was very wonderful, um, and it creates uh, a culture where the idea of Hasidus being ideas that are studied and it's a text doesn't really resonate. The idea is that Hasidus is something that is, that is felt and lived, and then the, the main source of that is the interaction between, between a regular person, a person who this sense of God is something that permeates their whole being. So they would go back and learn books of Hasidus? No, they would go back, they would go back and they, they would have these experiences and some, depending on the group, they would have a book of collected sayings. They might read like a, a, a line or two every Shabbos or something just to, you know, like you might pull out a photograph and, 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 and kind of revisit an experience. But it wasn't, it wasn't the idea of we're going to sit and study a text and try to understand it and then somehow that's going to be, accomplish something. Um, and to this day, in most Hasidic groups, there really is not a concept of studying Hasidus the way there's a concept say, of studying the Talmud or studying halacha or, or, or studying the weekly Torah reading. Because the idea is that the Hasidus is something that is supposed to be felt and experienced and held on to because Hasidus ultimately is not an idea Ideas are understood with the mind. Hasidus is a sense of God that comes from a part of ourselves we'll loosely call for right now the soul. And so in the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, who was a third generation Hasidic master, was the Baal Shem Tov, 
his successor, and then the Alter Rebbe was a, a successor of the Magid Mezrich, second generation. The Alter Rebbe wrote this book. He writes the introduction that he's writing it as a substitute, as a replacement for people having an interpersonal interaction with him. Which means what he's trying to do is take what is, what was the result of experiencing another person and interacting with them and turning it into a book to be studied. Now, do you think that that's an effective strategy? <laughs> to take, I mean, I could just write up my classes as essays, right? And never show up and we'll see how that, how that goes, right? Should we do that? You, you can reach more people. So then we should cancel all live classes and just publish essays. But you lose something very, very important. First off, even just in the realm of ideas, you lose the fact that when you're, when you're talking to somebody, you have the ability of making sure they understand you. That you adjust what you're saying, they ask a question, right? If you're writing, you're writing to a fictitious audience. You're coming up with what they already know and don't need to be explained, and what they don't know, what you should explain, what you should spend more time, less time on, right? And if the person reads it and they don't have that um, living feedback, they can end up misinterpreting things. That's number one. Number two, at the end of the day, we're not even talking about something which is really meant to be understood. It's meant to be lived. It's meant to be experienced. Right? So may, maybe you feel like the Alter had made some music or poetry. He didn't make music, actually. That might be arguably something you can convey an experience through, through art. But how do you convey it through ideas? So I'm going to give you the true answer, which is not what people like to hear, but you're going to hear it anyway. The Hasidic program of the Alter Rebbe, and which is known as Chudas Chabad, does not work by understanding ideas. It's not like, I'm going to write some ideas, you're going to learn them, you're going to understand them, and now, voila, you, you, now that you understand the stuff, now you have Hasidus. Because again, Hasidus is an experience. The way it works is, when a person grapples and struggles in order to understand the ideas, they end up tapping into that soul that gives them the sense of God. So I'll give you an example of what I mean, not using anything mystical, okay? If I ask you to lift something that is too heavy for you to lift comfortably, and you lift it, and then I ask you to repeat over and over again what will happen to your muscles, they will get tired. What else will happen to your muscles? They'll get muscle memory. What else will happen? They'll get stronger. They'll get used to it, right? In other words, your body adjusts to the activity. It learns how to do it more effectively. It also build, It also gets stronger, right? So it draws out untapped potential. On the other hand, if I ask you to do something that you already know how to do, right? Nothing develops. I mean, it's very easy, but nothing develops. And this is true in many areas in life, right? That when we encounter something that is difficult and we struggle through a difficulty, we develop potential that we did not know that we had. Okay. When a person is given the 
challenge of having to struggle to understand what I'm going to loosely frame as godly concepts, what does that do to them? If they actually engage in that struggle, it brings out the innate sense of God that every Jew has, that innate sense of God that Belshanta spoke about. So the Alter Rebbe's idea is I'm not giving you information. What I'm giving you is a program of intellectual exercise. Ideas to be grappled with, contemplated, reflected, debated, and doing it specifically in the correct way brings out a different sense of God. And so ironically, from the Altarist point of view, the person who understands the ideas better and quicker is at a disadvantage than the person who understands the ideas less accurately and slowly. Because the person who understands the ideas less accurately and slower is going to have to do what? Put more work into it. And it's the putting the work into wrapping your mind around something godly that brings out the godly sense that it, that it truly is. Now, that doesn't mean if you're getting it wrong is a good thing. It just means the struggle to get over getting it wrong and deal with the abstraction. Now, I'm not going to go over the entire program or everything, but it's in that context the altar was saying, look, there's a lot of things people are coming to me for, but ultimately if you sit with a text and with a teacher and you struggle to figure out what this means, in that struggle to figure it out, you will draw out of yourself the same thing that the Bashamta was able to bring out of people by having an interaction through smiling, through telling a story, which means that when a person has a sense that I've mastered the, the, the text and I've understood it, that's when it stops being effective. So at what point did the disciples of the Alter Rebbe stop learning Tanya? Never. Right? In fact, the Alter Rebbe was himself once seen studying the Tanya. And someone asked him, why are you studying the Tanya? You wrote it. He says, there's things in this book I never knew before. Because what he did is not, I understand things and I'm going to now put them in text so you can understand them. He's saying is, I have this sense of Hasidus and I am going to use the mind and the intellect as a means of conveying this spiritual godly sense. And since godliness is infinite, if I go back and do the same program that I'm telling other people do, I will discover for myself a sense of God that I myself didn't have before. So hence, the Alter himself studied the Tanya. And when I say study, I don't mean he reviewed it, I mean he studied it. He thought deeply, he asked questions. Why does it say this? Okay. So, what we have to do now think is that, the, and this is true by the way in Hasidic, in Hasidic texts, and especially in Chabad, that the text is not a means to ideas and the way you get from the ideas, the ideas from the text is studying. The text is a means to study. In other words, the goal is the studying. If you understand the ideas without the studying, that's like walking to the finish line and not actually running the race. You didn't really accomplish anything. When I was in high school, we had to run the mile. And so I asked the teacher, what does that mean to run the mile? I said, well, you see each side of this yard is a quarter mile, right? So when you cross this line, then you're done. It's like, oh, well, that's simple. And I just walked around to the line, and that was that. Like, I didn't walk all the way around. I'm not interested in doing that work. And I strangely got an F for some reason. I don't know. Like, how do you fail gym? But... So, so it, 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 you know, 
there's a thing called the wall, the map of the tide, and it's a wonderful thing. But at the end of the day, if like, you memorize that and understand that and even find re- meaning and relevance in your life, you kind of miss the point. The point is the struggle to understand what is being said. Now, the Altaba wrote the Tanya in a very terse way. Um, and and um, the Altaba also writes that it's not, it's not something that I'm just throwing the book and expecting people to just grapple with on their own. Like, like anything that requires um, skills, they need a teacher to provide perspective, guidance, how to focus, what to focus on first, second, third, and fourth. But it really is meant to be something that is much more akin to learning how to do something and doing it rather than just acquiring information, okay? Which is, again, one of the reasons why I don't feel so bad about starting in the middle of the book because at the end of the day, if we're struggling to understand a chapter of Tanya, will it have the effect that it's supposed to have? Yes. Okay, now, is a lecture the best way to study Tanya? No. No. What would be the best way to study Tanya? With a chavrusa. What is a chavrusa? No. Chavrusa is not a group. A partner. Why not a group? Because when there's a group, what ends up happening is you have a dominant person and a bunch of people who are just, um, should be nice. They are benefiting from the dominant person. They're not going to be nice. They're leeching off the dominant person. <laughs> right? We all know this from group projects, right? That's how these things work. Okay. okay. In a chavrusa, a chavrusa is generally two people um, who neither of them can take a dominant position over the other, either because they're relatively equal or they, or they are, are better at one thing over the other. For instance, one person is really good at translating, but the other person is much more analytical, whatever the case might be. And so what ends up happening is that the people, the two people are, are forced to be both actively engaged and encounter another mind. And, and when you do that, when you study that way, um, you go through a process of really trying to really make sense of things and really trying to understand things. Um, there's also something to be said about studying on your own because it gives you time for reflection. There's something about a class which it gives you perspective. And so ideally it's good to have all the things, um, but if a person wants to get the most out of the Tanya, it's good to have a Harusa. And a Harusa, what I mean is again, somebody who's not teaching it to you, somebody who you and that person are more or less stuck in the same boat and are working through it together. Um, but when you start having three or four people in a group, what ends up happening is you have a dominant person and someone who's sitting there quietly listening. And that person is not gaining very much. Okay. So that's the idea of the Tanya overall. Okay. Now, specifically when Chassidus Chabad, Dr. wrote the Tanya to be kind of like the main core book in a way that kind of like everything in the Torah can be found in the Chumash, at least in some sort of alluded way. Everything in the Alter Rebbe's understanding of Hasidic teachings can be found in the Tanya. Um, that being said, the Tanya has some very obvious topics it addresses, and certain things are only touched very, very incidentally, which is why there's other Hasidic works as well, other Hasidic discourses. Okay. Specifically, what is the main focus of the book of the Tanya? Overtly, what does it talk about? It talks about the idea that it is possible for a person to have this sense of closeness to God 
in a way that it is completely under their control. Um, there's a story that Hasidim used to illustrate this idea that there was one time a Hasid of the Alter Rebbe and he had a neighbor and his neighbor was a Hasid of a different Hasidic Rebbe named Rebbe Chaim Chaikal of Amdura and his neighbor every day used to pray with tremendous fiery passion every day doesn't matter Tuesday, Wednesday, Shabbos he would get up and he would just his soul would be on fire pour his heart, heart to God and this Hasid of the Alter Rebbe he tried to follow the Alter program and sometimes things went better and sometimes things didn't go as well as he wanted. His better days and worse days. And after a while, he started to feel that he was getting the short end of the stick because his neighbor, he's getting a you know, steady supply of spiritual inspiration every day. And um, he sometimes goes, sometimes doesn't. So he went to the Alter and he complained. And the Alter said, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you because you complain. No, that's all the Alter said. The Alter Rebbe said, your neighbor is not praying with passion. Rebbe Chaim Chaikal of Amdur is praying with passion and it's being manifest in your neighbor. In other words, what you're seeing is not your neighbor. What you're seeing is someone else's spiritual energy being projected into, the, into someone else. Okay? Now that's a very deep and abstract idea to make a simple analogy. If you go to a wedding and there's really good music playing, Right? People look very happy because they're dancing, right? How do you know they're not really happy? What happens when the music stops? They stop dancing, except for a few people. Who are those people? What? The happy, the happy ones who are usually close relatives and friends of the Hasanakala, right? Those people are still dancing, right? So he said, you're seeing a tremendous amount of, of, of fiery passion, but that fiery passion isn't your neighbor. It's your neighbor has made himself a channel and a vessel for the spiritual fire of Rechaim Chaikal to be manifest in his prayers. You, on the other hand, your prayers are your prayers. And so sometimes they go better and sometimes they go worse because what I'm, what I'm teaching you to do is to tap into your own sense of God, your own, the, the Hasidus within inside yourself, not I'm just showering the Hasidus onto you. And that means that the locus of responsibility is in the person not in the Hasidic master. Okay. So, and the model for this is much more like the idea of education. In education, who's ultimately responsible for your education? You're responsible for your education, contrary to what many people seem to think. If you're not learning, who needs to fix that? You. Now, sometimes that means you go to the teacher and say, like, things aren't working, and the teacher will say, okay, maybe I should do something different. Like, thank you for the feedback, right? Maybe you need a different teacher, right? But at the end of the day, what a teacher is there to do is to help you come to understand for yourself. So the outcome is my job here is to create a system and guidance that, bring, that you can bring out um, a sense of closeness to God that is of your own, of your own making, and it's a pure responsibility to maintain it. Right? Now... In doing that, you need to have set up a lot of things. And in the first nine chapters of Tanya, what the Alter does is he sets out a lot of basic pieces of information about a Jew and about the Torah and about sins and about life. Um, so that once you have all these pieces to, uh, kind of clear, then you can begin to figure out how to actually put them together. Um, 
An example of this would be, is anyone here play chess? I don't have You know how? Like, you know how to move the pieces, or you know strategy? Okay, so this is, then, then this will work well. Okay, there's two levels of knowing how to play chess. One is knowing how to move the pieces, and one is knowing why you should move which piece when. Also in a strategy, right? Now, real playing of chess is the second thing. But you can't do the second thing unless you have the first thing, right? And this is true in many areas of life. Um, you can't make a case in court unless you know the law. Right? So knowing the law doesn't make you a good lawyer, it's just a prerequisite, or at least knowing how to find the laws, right? There's a level of, of having um, the, the basics down, the basics clear, that then allow you to do something that is more engaging and more creative. This is something that very often we skip in modern education. Um, we're not a big fan of memorizing things, are we? And what's the disadvantage of not having stuff memorized? You have to look stuff up. When you're looking stuff up, guess what you're not doing? You're not thinking creatively about it. The irony is, is that rote memorization actually enables a tremendous amount of creativity later. But while you're doing it, it's very, very, very dull. Right? Someone who knows pages and pages of the Talmud by heart can think of very creative ways of reconciling contradictions. Someone who forgot what was on the top of the page by the time they get to the bottom of the page is never going to be able to think creatively of how to reconcile contradictions because they didn't even know there was a contradiction because they forgot what it said at the beginning of the page. Yeah? What did you say last time that we should start with chapter 24? I said last time you should start with chapter 24. 34. 34. You said I said you should start with chapter 24. I cannot imagine I said start with chapter 24. 32. 30. I said chat. That I could imagine me saying, I just don't recall myself saying it. 32 maybe. When did, in what context did I say this? There's no way I said start from chapter 24. Chapter 24 is like in the middle of something. <laughs> and it talks about how sin separates you from God. It's not like the greatest chapter to start with. Chapter 32 speaks about loving your fellow Jew and it's kind of like an independent chapter. It was actually added in the second edition. The first edition didn't even exist. But I don't recall saying it. Um. Okay. But, so chapter, first off, chapter 32 really does kind of stand on its own. Um. So, the first nine chapters, there's a bunch of information. If that information you have, then it makes the rest of the Tanya like a lot more sense. If you don't have that information, it makes the rest of the Tanya harder to understand. Okay. Now, are we going to learn online chapters right now? No. Okay. Some of that information I will just keep in my mind and I'll bring up as we need it, and some of it we're going to go over right now. Okay. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to discuss this idea, which probably some of you have heard before, the idea that there, every Jew has two souls. If you have not heard of this idea that a Jew has two souls, please raise your hand. Okay, so everyone has heard the idea. Okay. Now, what's a soul? What? You have two parts of it? So if you have two souls, then whatever a soul is has to be true about both of them, right? 
if we call one soul the animal soul, so, I mean, unless you want to say there's an animal part of God and like a godly part of God, it starts to sound like a different religion. <laughs> Okay. One of the things that we're going to encounter as we're studying is that words, words are very, words are like toilets. Like, would you, would you like to live in a world with no toilets? No. But toilets are like, they're not really pleasant things. They're useful, right? But if you spend too much time hanging around them, like, it's like not what life's really about, right? Words, we, without, right, words, we can't really get by without words. Without words, we can't communicate with each other. The problem is when people are getting hung up, hung up on words. Now, this is tricky because if you completely ignore words, so it ends up happening as people speak past each other, they don't understand things, they're sloppy. But on the other hand, you go to the opposite extreme and actually like get way hung up on the words and you become that annoying person that... Um, when someone says, can I go to the bathroom? You say, I don't know. Can you? Do you have the capability? It's like, no, we all know that can is used by most people to mean permission, right? It has that meaning. Even though it didn't used to have that meaning. It's developed that meaning. It's okay, move on, right? <laughs> so words are important, but in the context of what do they mean by them, right? So the word soul, what is a soul? Sometimes we use the word soul to mean the part of God inside of us. That's true. But when we say you have two souls, we clearly mean something else by soul, right? Well, we need to know what we mean by that. I don't care what you call it. You could call it chopped liver. Like, I don't care what word you use. It doesn't matter to me what word you use. But if I say we have two souls, and what I mean by soul, and what you mean by soul, and what she means by soul, what the means by soul are four different things, and we're all like nodding our heads because we we're all using the same word, that's not very helpful, right? No, it's not helpful. And once we figure out what the word soul means here, does that mean now every time we ever see the word soul ever again, we should just like copy, paste, and stick that meaning in? No. That's right. Okay. Fine. So, what is a soul in the context of you have two souls? Two powers. Two powers. Well, I have more than two powers. I have the power to talk no, like, and the power to shut up. Though I rarely use the second. But, no, like, if we don't have a soul, like, our body is, like, um, use, for, like, without the soul, it can't. Okay, so a soul is like a battery for the body. Okay, that is technically correct and very wrong at the same time. It is technically correct that if you take the soul out of the body, the body doesn't function. It actually doesn't even hold itself together. It starts to decompose unless you do like things like put it in a refrigerator or something. Um, so that is, that is technically accurate. However, um, batteries or, or you know, plugs or things like that are something that we need so that something can function. The relationship between the soul and the body is the reverse. The body doesn't really need the soul because have you ever seen a body without a soul? Okay, if you, a body, what? A body without a soul, if you, if you let it go long enough, right, so the, all the soul's influence disappears, it come, turns into dirt. So like walk outside, look at the dirt, and like maybe pick some dirt up, like really empathize and say, does this dirt really feel lacking that doesn't have a soul to give it like the ability to walk and talk? And is the dirt like sad? Is it missing out? Is it, the dirt is fine, right? 
On the other hand, the soul in heaven is very upset that it doesn't have a body because without a body, the soul can't do things. For instance, if the soul wants to teach you guys Tanya and it's in heaven, it's not going to work. It needs a body, right? So the same way I wouldn't think of glasses as needing eyes in order to be important. I would think of my eyes need glasses in order to see, right? The main thing is my, my eyes. The secondary thing is the glasses. The main thing is the soul. The soul, in order to accomplish certain things, needs to be clothed in a body. So I don't ever want, and this is very important, I don't ever want to reduce the soul to a means for the body's function. Because then what have I done and what have I made the main thing? The body. And at that point, I've totally lost any sense of what a soul is. Even the animal soul, for that matter. So what I want to do, so you're, you're, it is true, without the soul, the body won't function. But that's not really what a soul is, because the body doesn't, the body, if the body doesn't have the soul, the body will be fine. The body will decompose, it'll turn into dirt, and the dirt will sit there, and the dirt, I mean, it's inanimate, so it doesn't feel anything, but it's, it's not bothered by that. The soul really is bothered, right? The part of the person that doesn't want to die is the soul or the body? The soul. Because if the soul leaves the body, then the soul doesn't have whatever the body provides for it. The, body, the body's dirt and doesn't care. Okay. Um, a soul is the part of you that makes you, you. So, are you a dog? No. No. Why not? Because you don't have a dog soul, right? I mean, if someone says, well, I'm not a dog because I don't have four legs, like, and if we surgically, like, took off your arms and added legs, now I'd be a dog, like, no, like, no, like, it, deep down at the core of you, there's something that makes you who you are, and it's not dog-like. Dogs, on the other hand, right? What kind of souls do dogs have? Dog souls, okay? So the soul of something is the thing that makes it be what it is. So basically, you are yourself, not part of you. That's right. That's right. Now, when a little baby is born, they have a soul, right? Is there a difference between their soul and an adult soul? Well, some people said no. I'm interested in the people who are nodding their head yes. People think yes. Why would you think there's a difference between the, the, the baby's soul and the adult soul? Why not? Is like the soul like like waiting for an update? Like needs to. Okay. Ah, so there is the so so what we have to do is we have to we have to we have to split. There's the soul itself, and there's the soul's ability to function. The soul's ability to function develops and changes over time based on what you experience and interaction with the body, and that develops, right? But does that change the soul itself? 
so a consequence of this, right, is that we think that a person is a person from the beginning. They don't become a person when they all of a sudden develop the ability to talk. Right? Even though it's easier to relate to them as a person once they can talk. I know I have little kids. It's very different when they're sitting there as infants and can barely communicate and they start actually uttering words, right? You start to feel like there's much more like there's a person there. But the fact that I feel like there's more of a person there means there's actually more of a person there? No. Okay. So there's the soul itself and there's how the souls manifest. Okay. So now, what would it mean to have two souls? Two sides of you? No. No, because that, no. No. You're avoiding the conclusion. You are two things. You, you are not one thing. There are two of you. Not there's two sides of you, there's actually... There's two of you. Yes, right, then this is supposed to... See, when you read Tanya and it says you have two souls, if you have the proper background for the... the for, 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 the, the philosophical ideas and the spiritual ideas that are being discussed there, that should be very disturbing, right? Saying you have two inclinations, I mean, that's blatantly obvious. We have two inclinations, right? We have more than two inclinations. We can broadly group them into things that I should do and things I shouldn't do. We can call them the Yitzhah and Yitzhah, right? But to say that I have two souls means that in this body there lives two different beings, there's someone who's a dog and there's someone who's a gorilla or whatever. Not really. I have a question. I don't know yeah. if I'm talking, but uh, at what point do we know or do we talk about when the soul enters the body? So, the, so th that's another one where the words are like annoying. The soul, the soul entering the body is usually th that terminology is used in, in Hasidus and in Kabbalah to mean manifesting not to actually be in the body. The soul is in the body from the moment of conception, in that ontological sense. Like, now, at what point does the soul manifest? So if we're talking about the godly soul, there's different stages. For a boy, the first step is the, the bris. For a girl, it's, I guess, at birth, because she doesn't need a bris. And then bar and bas mitzvah, 12, 13, for boys and girls. Um, and then there's another cutoff point at 20, another cutoff point at 70. Um, those are the ones that... And so but when we say that the soul is entering, that can mean manifesting. We don't really mean like the soul wasn't there, now it's there. Um. So the soul becomes within the body. Right, right, right. Okay. But, so now, the idea of having two souls means that even though you have one body, there's actually two of you, right? And so the way that it's good to think about this when you're studying it to understand it is really to think about it as like two different people. Not to think about two sides of one person. Now, in reality, do we experience ourselves as two different people? Not unless you need some serious psychiatric help, right? Okay. Um, and so talking about a student people is just a way of help making it clear. It's not actually that there's two different people. Okay. But what that would mean is, okay, that it's not that deep down there's myself and I want, you know, some things that are good and some things that are bad and, you know. What it is is there's actually two different people who are very, very different 
inhabiting the same body, which is going to create some problems, right? Some fundamental problems, right? Um, have you ever tried driving when someone else is a you know, backseat driver? That's very annoying, right? Imagine if they grabbed hold of the steering wheel and tried to drive along with you. Right? That would really not be such a great thing, right? Okay. So one of these souls is called the godly soul. The other soul is called the animal soul. Okay. Briefly, what does the animal soul want? Because if you know what someone wants, that gives you a good sense of who they are. Now, I don't mean like want like, you know, I want to go to the store right now or I want chocolate chip cookies. Right? Like, I mean, like deep, 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 deep down. What does it want? It wants to live. There's another word. What do you mean live? Survive. No. It doesn't want to survive. It doesn't want to give it. To, it does not want to survive. If the animal soul is faced with survival or death, it's not always so clear that it's going to pick survival. Enjoy. Wants to give in to temptation? Not necessarily. It's only a very undeveloped, immature animal soul. It wants to thrive. It doesn't just want to survive, it wants to thrive. It wants to really be alive. Now, what are some of the things that make us feel alive? Well, every soul is. That's true, but there are some, you know, people tend to be pretty similar. So let's go through some broad categories. Food! Right? For, uh, food. Let's go through food. Now, it's not just technically. It's very important. It's not just technically if you don't have nutrition, then, like, things don't work out so, right? No. The eating of food, right? It's like the whole experience of living, right? People go around the world in order to experience food, right? Or you come home after a hard day's work and you sit down with your favorite food, right? So food, not just as a means to fuel yourself because you need nutrition, but the actual experience of eating taste, texture, right? The company which you eat the food, well, all, all that is part of the experience of living. And people look forward to that, right? Okay. So that's part of the animal soul? That's part of the animal soul, yeah. What else? What are the things that, exp- that are experiences of living, of really thriving? So food is one. Sleep? Sleep? Like when you're really tired? <laughs> yeah. Okay, what else? Beauty, yeah. Experiencing beautiful things. Quality things. Like? Like a really good couch versus like a couch. Why? Because there's a difference between like having, okay, like eating a couch and a couch. And then like getting like this nice and warm. Okay, but, but flesh, like what does that do for the soul? Instead of, instead of being like, oh, I have to be bare minimum or just like, you know, like I have something really nice. Uh-huh. Right, so that fe- a feel a feeling of a feeling of specialness or superiority. Like I have this really special. Like I don't have just the generic one. I have the best one. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Yeah. There's a fe- there's a feeling a feeling of specialness and superiority. Right. That'll do it. Anything else? Yeah. What? Wealth. Wealth. Music. Wealth. Music. Power. 
social status, quality relationships, learning new things, adventure, safety. You know, two, two, two adventures, right? My favorite one, meaning, right? When you feel like you're doing something really meaningful, right? All of these, when you have these things, right? They all make us feel more alive, alive right? And when we're lacking these things, we feel dead. dead, right? And we can get through those dead periods. That's called surviving, right? But if we're faced with long periods of just mere surviving, sometimes the soul is like, well, it's not worth it anymore, right? It's very, very sad. Okay. Is the animal soul particularly... Um, obsessed with making sure that it's, it has a certain kind of living or any living is good. Whatever living works for it. Yeah, but let's say like it's living it up with by, you know, having fine dining and good company and, and a quality couch and, and knowing that, you know, the most popular person in your, in your neighborhood is and the fact that it's not experiencing the thrill of understanding the cosmos, is that going to bother the animal soul? What? No, I think they're all pretty, not like different things. Not, yeah, so I th- the thing to understand is that the godly soul, the, the animal soul, is, is in principle pretty indifferent to what makes it feel alive. It doesn't matter as long as it actually is living. As, as, as long as it really is living, that's good enough. So it's true that a particular person might not get a, get a sense of really living in a particular thing. Right? They might, you know, food might not just do it for them. It's like too dull. Another person, learning new ideas might not be the thing. Another person musically speaks to them. But at the end of the day, in its core, at its essence, the animal soul doesn't really care about the things that give it the sense of life, it cares about just the sense of feeling alive, the sense of personal thriving and well-being. So where did preferences come from? Um, they can come from any number of places, but the, the, the key point here is that they're not intrinsic to the animal soul. Okay? They might come from your animal soul, but 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 at, at its core, that's not what it's driven after. Um, yeah. So, based so far as I understand, animal soul is not necessarily negative. Correct. It's the thing that makes you a person. Well, I mean, thinking of something as a negative or a positive really depends on your point of reference, right? By, by calling it an animal soul, we're, we're, it, it is being viewed negatively, but that's from a particular context. And I haven't gotten to that context. I think it's important to realize that from a non-Hasidic perspective, the animal soul should not be viewed as negative. It's only in a Hasidic context the animal soul can be viewed as negative. And I'll get to that in a second, okay? Because basically, to put it another way, is the animal soul is the thing that makes you human being. The animal soul should not be thought of as the just the you know short-sighted, self-centered, hedonistic side of us. Okay. Now you have the godly soul. What does the godly soul desire? Love. Why? 
It desires God because it is God. Um, I mean, the godly soul isn't God. I mean, you know, we, even our godly souls are worshiping God, right? They're serving God. They're not God. So, I mean, it doesn't involve God. Right. If there's an analogy there. The analogy is that like, the godly soul is like a child. A child. Right? So if you have a, if, if you if you have a um, if your parents were goldfish, you would be a goldfish. If your parents were elephants, you would be. So if God was your parent, you would be. You'd be godlike, right? So the, the idea that the godly soul is a little piece of God is the way like I'm a little piece of my father. Not like we chopped up my father and like I have the leg, God forbid. <laughs> it means that, right? Now, and what that mean, it, 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 it means that, that what defines you as a being, what kind of being you are, it comes from your parents. So if you're, again, if, you're, if your parents are, pick another creature if your parents are dogs you'll be a dog your parents are cats you'll be a cat right if your parents are people you'll be a person right so if god is your father in a not you know just a poetic way of speaking but you mean that as a philosophical idea then what would that mean you are a godly being right you're not god as like the being with whose name is god but you are god-like in in some sense And the divine soul, right? The godly soul is very weird. And therefore, the, God, the only thing the godly soul wants is to be connected to God. And that being connected to God is not a means to experience something else. So that is the thing that matters. And anything else is viewed as a negative. From the godly soul's point of view, anything that is not about being connected to God is a distraction to being connected to God. So if you are looking at the animal soul from the godly soul's point of view, would the animal soul be a negative? Okay, but only from that point of view. So let's make sure we understand this very clearly, right? Is my desire to want to um, have a comfortable couch to sit on an evil thing? No. Does my desire to, have a com- to sit on a comfortable couch... Um, distract me from being totally devoted to God? Yes. So like what happens if you're using the So, I'm going to give you the honest answer. The honest answer is that you stop talking about God and start talking about mitzvahs. And we didn't talk about mitzvahs yet. Right? right. right. See, that, that's an important thing. We can't... Right? What you're saying is not without merit, but like, 
just like we have to speak, you have two souls. So what is a mitzvah? What is like like we just take for granted doing mitzvahs is godly, but like who says and why? And like, I mean, God is God, right? So arguably speaking, my godly soul basically is basically it just does two things if left to its own devices. Number one, it obsesses over God, and number two, it desires God, and that's about it. Thinks about God and has feelings towards God. When I'm studying the laws of Shabbos, I'm studying about how to make tea on Saturday. I'm not talking about, I'm not thinking about God, am I? Okay. <laughs> so, so the godly soul, all the godly soul desires is God. That means its whole mind is wrapped up in trying to come to terms with God. All of its emotions are centered around God. And the whole idea of being a human being and living a human life and that thriving of a human being from the godly soul's point of view is going to be a disturbance. Now, if we downplay that tension, are we doing ourselves a disservice? We, or, yeah, because if, if we're going to pretend something isn't an issue that is an issue, we're never going to address it. There is a serious conflict here. Right? The conflict that, that, should, that comes out of the first nine chapters of Tanya is that the animal soul and the godly soul really are at war with each other because the animal soul would like you to be a healthy, thriving human being. Right? And if God fits into that as like a hobby, great, whatever. And the godly soul would like us to be what? Which means right, so the only thing we would think about the only thing we would feel any emotion towards is God. And absent understanding how Judaism and Torah mitzvahs is connected to God, would we feel the need to interact with the physical world at all? No. Like there's a very big, right? This is not about being a good person versus a bad person. This is something that's much more fundamental. Ah. So, so that's that's the that's the animal soul's propaganda. <laughs> the end of chapter nine it actually says that the animal soul actually has a secret agenda, which is it's really just to distract you from God. It just knows if it comes waving the distract you from God banner, like that doesn't wrap very effective. So therefore, it couches it in let's live a thriving, meaningful life, which happens to be devoid of God, but or has a little bit of God, but not too much God. Very good. But that itself is just a cover for a deeper agenda. To bring out the true potential of That's right. So there's layer <laughs> the animal soul is very conniving. Right? So it's like we just live and be a healthy, thriving human being. It's not about God, it's about living, and, and, and really, but that's really just a way of getting you to be distracted from it all being about God, which is really just a way of bringing out that the godly soul's connection to God should be much deeper, because we know anything that comes through adversity is much deeper, which really means ultimately, 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 what do both souls really want everything to be about? God. God. However, the animal soul is doing it in such a way that makes it very, very difficult. <laughs> And one of the ways it makes it very difficult is by not being anti-God, but by being pro-everything that isn't God. 
right? I'm going to use this as an example just to illustrate my point, right? You, you, you know that um, abortion is a controversial topic. I'm not getting into the actual subject, right? But how come no one has the slogan, like, there's, there's pro-life, so then we should be, like, pro-death? Or pro-choice, so the opposite, we should be, like, pro-coercion? How come no one's like, we're pro-coercion, or we're pro-death, right? Because that's not very appealing, right? Everyone wants to couch their side in a way that makes it look... Right. So if the gal, if the animal soul would come and say like 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 I'm anti, I'm pro godlessness. I'm pro and de- being devoid of any spiritual sensitivity. Like that wouldn't like resonate. That wouldn't capture people. Right. So how does the animal soul present itself by being pro life? As long as that life is any life that is human or created, it's not God. Even something like meaning and purpose, right? Meaning and purpose are something that's a feature of me. I have meaning. I have purpose. I'm doing something important. And it's and the, you stick God in there if you want in the background, but it's like I'm, I'm, it's like in the, in the United States. The United States is a Western country is pretty tolerant of religion, as long as religion is treated as like something around the as like some cross between like popular psychology and, a, and an important hobby. But the idea like your life is actually grounded in religion is like a little too much. So the animal's like, you want a little God, a little Judaism, it's fine. It's okay, no, it's fine. But like, like life isn't really about that. Life is about living. Right, okay. Yeah, so it's, it's about personal thriving and well-being, which is just a cover for being against God, which is the cover for ultimately that our connection to God should be coming from a much deeper place than the godly soul would actually be on its own. Yes. So... Really, the war was actually set up by God, actually. <laughs> he set up this war. Okay. Now, we also have this thing called Torah and mitzvahs. Torah and mitzvahs, and this is, this is another very important way. Torah and mitzvahs are not so much the way we connect to God, but the way God connects to us. Okay? What's very important to understand about Torah and mitzvahs is that why is it that when you light a Shabbos candle, you're connected to God? That's because God is reaching out to you through the Shabbos candle. So now, if you have a godly soul that is totally obsessed with God, right? And then you point out to the godly soul that God is sticking out his little pinky finger in the Shabbos candle and saying, here, take my hand then what is the godly soul going to do? Run to that Shabbos candle, right? Is this godly soul making the Shabbos candle for a meaningful experience? Is it expressing itself through the Shabbos candle? No. Okay. This is the thing. If the godly soul were left to its own devices, what would it spend all its day thinking about? God. So why does it spend its time thinking about how to make tea on Shabbos? Does it really care about tea? So why is it spending its time thinking about how to make tea on Shabbos? That's the way to access Hashem. What? It wants to connect to Hashem. And? That's the way to access Hashem. Because Hashem is reaching out. The Torah and mitzvahs, the Torah that we study, the mitzvahs we do, is Hashem reaching out to the soul. So if you think of this as a parent-child relationship, the Torah and mitzvahs are much more the parent taking the child along with them and saying, come, let's go to the park. Come, I'll take you to, you know, you know, you know child's day at work. Come, like, you know, sit next to me in shul. Right? It's the way the parent reaches down and brings the child along. 
So are the Torah and mitzvahs really an expression of the godly soul? Are they really expressing the godly soul? If I want to know the godly soul, should I go open up a code of... No, it's not going to tell... Right? That's telling me how does God reach down to the person. Now, the godly soul, because the godly soul is so obsessed with God, when it knows that God is reaching out to us through the Torah mitzvahs, it becomes obsessed with the Torah mitzvahs. But not as Torah mitzvahs as, you know, it really cares about Shabbos or really cares about, about mikvah or things like that in and of themselves. Why is the godly soul obsessed with those things? Because that's Hashem's way of reaching out to the soul. So what would happen if, let's say, Hashem's not reaching out to you in that mitzvah anymore? Then does the godly soul desire it anymore? No. So, for instance, um, sometimes a mitzvah is no longer a mitzvah. Let's say you're in the middle of, your, of, of having a wonderful Shabbos meal. Um, and you discover that the Shabbos food is not kosher. Something happened in the kitchen it's not kosher. And now you don't have any Shabbos food left, right? And you're like in some place where you can't like, get stuff from the neighbors. Right? I don't know. You're a Chabad house in like, I don't know, the middle of Missouri. And something happened in the kitchen and now it turns out in the middle of the meal you find out that all the Shabbos food of the whole Shabbos is not kosher. So the rest of Shabbos is going to be what? Like, you know, you've got some like stale matzahs from like half a year ago and um, I don't know, something else in the cabinets and like you can't cook anything and like there's some fresh fruit, right? Now, if all you cared about in the whole Shabbos thing was just Hashem reaching out to you, is there any reason to feel disappointed? Would most of us feel disappointed? <laughs> so what does that tell us about our attachment to Torah and mitzvahs? We add a lot of other stuff that isn't have to do with the godly side of it. As far as the godly soul is concerned, what is the one thing that's of value in learning Torah and doing mitzvahs? Is that Hashem is reaching out to me there? That very same thing, I was a little kid, I ran up to my father in Shul, and he turned around, and it wasn't my father, because, you know, all the, all the Lubavitch men with their, their kapatas and their talisman all look the same from the back, so the same guy, same right. It's very disturbing, right? Because, like, you run to something because you don't want what you see, you want what you think's inside of it, but we find it's not there, right? So, if I'm doing something because I really like to our mitzvahs, there's a question, which I don't know if we should spend too much time thinking about, but it is an interesting question. Is the thing that I'm driven to the fact that Torah mitzvahs is Hashem reaching out to me? Or is the thing there's something else with Torah mitzvahs that I really like? Okay. And now from there, it could be like, there's all sorts of other stuff in the world that I need to do in order to get to the Torah mitzvahs. The godly soul is obsessed with God, right? But the only way to actually, because remember God is infinitely far, the only way to really be connected to Hashem is for Hashem to reach out to us. So the godly soul wants to grab hold of those, of, of that outstretched arm, those Torah and those mitzvahs. But now can the godly soul um, study Torah when it's starving to death? When it's overtired? So is it willing to let the body eat and sleep? Sure, because that's the only way I'm going to get to the studying Torah and doing the mitzvahs. But at its core, where is the, where is, where is, where, where does the godly soul, it's all about its obsession with God. Even Torah and mitzvahs are, for the godly soul, something it has to come to understand their importance of. It has to come to appreciate that God is like, reaching out to me in the Torah and the mitzvahs. And only then it becomes into Torah and mitzvahs. The animal soul, what is the animal soul into? Anything that makes me feel thriving and flourishing. Sitting around with good company, having good food and having your cell phones off, 
talking about things that you find interesting feels really good, not just to your godly soul, but actually to. So who can actually develop an appreciation of Shabbos? But does that have anything to do with being connected to God? No. And so when Shabbos also doesn't look like that anymore, the animals was like, I'm not, this was not the Shabbos I signed up for. The Shabbos of being stuck in the airport with no food because your plane got delayed and so you landed too close to Shabbos, you can't leave the airport, right? That's not the Shabbos I went into. Okay? So it's very important when we're learning Tanya not to treat Torah and mitzvahs, at least when we're talking about the, from the human end of things, as synonymous with God. It's true from God's point of view, when he's talking about Torah mitzvahs, he's talking about his reaching out to us. But in our relationship, we relate to Torah mitzvahs as a set of practices, ideas, and rituals that can be meaningful to us without having anything to do with God, per se. In fact, many times when we try to make a mitzvah more meaningful, what are we doing? Right, we're trying to figure out ways we can relate to it that makes it appreciate more, we appreciate it, without just connecting the basic fact this is God reaching out to us. This is the meaning behind the Chabad custom of not decorating the sukkah. I'm not saying that this is, means that you're not allowed to decorate sukkahs, there's different customs, each one has their own meanings, but the Chabad custom of not decorating the sukkah is to teach a lesson, which is, what is the thing that you're supposed to find beautiful? Hashem. The actual sukkah. Hashem reaching out to you and giving you a hug in the sukkah, and that's it. You don't need any... Now, does that mean that if a person has a custom decorate the sukkah, they need to stop decorating the sukkah? It doesn't mean that. But... But when you say, well, if I'm really into mitzvahs, doesn't that mean I'm really into God? The answer is no, it doesn't really mean that. That was one of the key revolutions of the Baal Shem Tov, that you could have a very pious religious person who's into Judaism and completely estranged from God. They find the academics of Talmud scholarship fascinating. They like the ritual. They enjoy the communal life. Yeah? God provides a good justification for their moral sensibilities. And voila, like, there's, there's no... There's no there's no, there's no living God in their life, though. So what would a life, a life living with Hashem look like? That is where we're going to get chapter 10. Chapter 10 is going to describe what does a life look like where a person who's living with Hashem totally. Chapter 11 will tell us what happens when a person is not really living with Hashem. And chapter 12 will tell us that there's actually somewhat of a middle ground, which is where we should try and expect of ourselves. These are known in Hebrew as the Tzaddik, the Russian, the Benini. But that's actually what we're going to talk about. So we did a good job. We've, we've brought ourselves at least up to speed of where, where the context is. Chapter 10 is going to describe what does it look like when a person is going to really live a life that is 100% totally in line with God. What, is that, what does that life actually look like? Okay? So we will start that when? No, we will start that on Monday. Tomorrow we have questions and answers. Okay? I would like to tell you quickly about questions and answers. Questions and answers is a form you can ask whatever questions you want. They have to be related to Judaism, though. Um, they shouldn't be questions of personal advice. And if there are complex halachic issues, 